Hello, I'm Michael Novogratik, and this is Tax Credit Tuesday. Today is Tuesday, July 13, 2010. Tax Credit Tuesday is brought to you by the accounting and consulting firm of Novogratik & Company. This is our 135th podcast, and we've had over 65,000 downloads of our podcast to date. I'd like to thank our listeners for their support of the podcast, and I'd also like to encourage you to send me emails with ideas for topics. You can send an email to the firm at cpas at novaco.com or email me directly at michael.novogratic at novaco.com. This week, we have a terrific podcast for you. We begin with Congress back in session, so we'll review what is expected from Congress in the coming weeks. Next, I'll cover the upcoming CRA hearings. On the affordable housing front, I have information on FHA underwriting changes and fiscal year 2011 HUD and rural housing appropriations. On the new market tax credit front, I have information on a proposal to expand the program. And on the renewable energy tax credit front, I have info on legislation to create a geothermal tax credit. I close this week with the tax credit calendar and tax credit tidbits. If you're ready, let's begin. The congressional recess for senators and members of the House of Representatives is over, and they return to Washington, D.C. this week. Upon their return, senators are expected to continue to work on a small business lending and tax bill, specifically the Small Business Lending Fund Act, H.R. 5297. A number of amendments are pending to that bill, including, most importantly, a substitute amendment, Senate Amendment 4402, which carries roughly $12 billion in tax cuts that are aimed at small businesses. This amendment includes a provision to extend bonus depreciation tax incentives through the end of 2010. The substitute amendment also would allow for an increase in tax code section 179 expensing limits for certain restaurant and retail real property. The amendment also includes a five-year carryback for general business tax credits generated in 2010 by small businesses. Efforts are underway in the affordable housing community to expand this provision beyond small businesses and beyond those credits generated in 2010. I'm personally engaged in those efforts, and hopefully in the next few days we'll have a sense as to our likely success. Senate Majority Leader Harry Reid has not said when he expects to complete consideration of the small business bill. The bill is, however, expected to pass the Senate. That's because the Senate invoked cloture to proceed to the bill before the recess. The vote was 66-33 in favor, with eight Republicans voting in favor of the motion. As such, the bill only needs a majority vote to pass the Senate. One item still to be worked out is whether this bill will be a vehicle to address other tax issues, such as the expiration of the 2001 and 2003 Bush tax cuts. Now, according to Obama spokesman Robert Gibbs, Congress will likely wait until after the August recess to consider extension of the expiring 2001 and 2003 Bush tax cuts. For updates on the status of the small business bill this week, you can follow me on Twitter. The House, while the Senate's working, will be focusing on other legislative items, and it's going to await the Senate to complete its work on the small business bill. In other matters, as I previously mentioned in a tweet last week, the Senate Finance Committee is meeting on July 14th for a hearing on the future of individual tax rates. This hearing is seen as a precursor to consideration of extending the Bush 2001 and 2003 tax cuts. The hearing will focus on the effect that tax rates have on economic growth and income distribution. 
The hearing, if you want to attend, begins at 10 a.m. in room 215 of the Dirksen Senate Office Building. On the House side, the House Small Business Committee will hold a hearing on July 14th regarding bonus depreciation tax incentives. The committee will examine how these incentives help small businesses expand operations, promote economic growth, and aid in job creation. This hearing is going to be held at 1 p.m. on July 14th in room 2360 of the Rayburn House Office Building. Many of our listeners are also interested in financial reform legislation. As you're probably hearing on TV and on the radio, Senate Democrats were planning to push to approve the Financial Reform Conference report, but they were short Republican votes. Over the recess, Democrats had figured that they needed two Republican votes. It now appears that they have those votes in Republican Senators Scott Brown and Olympia Snow, and likely also in Susan Collins. With these two Republican votes, possibly three, the Democrats likely have enough votes to invoke cloture and they can avoid a filibuster. The House previously passed the conference report on financial reform legislation by a vote of 237 to 192 on June 30th. In other Senate business, Senator Reid intends to bring an energy bill to the Senate floor this month. It's unclear what will be included in the measure. Congress Daily is reporting that Senators will be presented with options, possibly sometime this week, as to what could make up the ultimate package. It's quite possible that those options will be presented today during the weekly policy luncheons. Aides are predicting a floor debate on the legislation for either the last week in July or early August. Senator Reid has also said he'd bring energy legislation to the floor of the Senate before the debate over Elena Kagan's nomination to the Supreme Court. Now, staffers for Senate Energy and Natural Resources Chairman Jeff Bingaman and Senators John Kerry and Richard Luger and Senator Olympia Snow, among others, have been working with Senator Reid's staff and each other during the recess on possible components of the bill. Whether the bill includes a price on carbon emissions remains a question mark, but there's a consensus that's developing that Senator Reid might move forward with an energy-only bill, a mandate that promotes the use of renewables and other types of clean energy sources that could become the core part of a package in lieu of carbon pricing. Such legislation would likely also include expansion of the Section 48 Cap C Advanced Energy Manufacturing Tax Credit. President Obama, on July 9th, again urged Congress to pass such an expansion of the Section 48 Cap C tax credit. President Obama had it and has it in his budget proposal, and legislation to accomplish this has been introduced. President Obama touted the tax credit in a speech in Las Vegas alongside Senate Majority Leader Harry Reid. This was during the Senate recess last week. The President said the credit already has had an extraordinary impact on the manufacturing sector. To date, he reported, more than 180 projects in more than 40 states have received the credit. I'll close the congressional update by noting that the determination as to when extenders and unemployment insurance extension legislation will again be considered by the Senate is still not yet known. I'll tweet as soon as I know something more substantive as to the timing. Next, we have an update on public hearings that are going to be held on Community Reinvestment Act regulations. As mentioned in a previous podcast, 
federal bank, and thrift regulatory agencies will hold a series of upcoming public hearings on modernizing the CRA regulations. The hearings are intended to consider how to update the regulations to reflect changes in the financial services industry, changes in how banking services are delivered to consumers today, and current housing and community development needs. The first of four hearings is next week, July 19th in Arlington, Virginia. The second hearing moves further south to Atlanta and is on August 6th. From there, the third hearing is on August 12th in Chicago, and the fourth scheduled hearing is on the West Coast on August 17th in Los Angeles. We encourage our listeners to attend, participate in, and submit oral and written comments on ways to improve the operation and effectiveness of the Community Reinvestment Act, particularly as it relates to affordable housing, community development, historic preservation, and renewable energy. On a related note, with his five-year term drawing to a close, Comptroller of the Currency, John C. Dugan, announced last week that he plans to leave office on August 14th. In announcing his departure, Mr. Dugan noted that the banking system had strengthened considerably since the worst days of the economic crisis, when its very viability seemed in question. Now, he said, the condition of the national banking system is much, much improved, with credit trends getting better in a number of areas. Let's turn our attention now to affordable housing. Last week, the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development announced a series of changes to the Federal Housing Administration's, FHA's, multifamily insurance programs. These changes will update underwriting policies, increase lender and underwriter quality, and align loan application submission and approval standards. HUD says the policy changes will include revised underwriting standards, enhanced verification of property financial performance, expanded borrower mortgage credit analysis, and pre-screening of proposals. You can find details about the changes in Mortgage Letter 2010-21. The letter can be found online at our website at www.hudresourcecenter.com. That's www.hudresourcecenter.com. And you'll find a letter, a copy of Mortgage Letter 2010-21. Now, HUD says that the change included in the new guidance will affect all multifamily rental programs. HUD says that the revised underwriting standards will raise, yes, raise debt service coverage ratios, will lower loan-to-value and loan-to-cost ratios, will increase project reserves and sponsor equity investment, and will limit sponsor cash-out. In addition, HUD says underwriting ratios will be targeted to different property types based on their risk profiles, with lower ratios for subsidized affordable housing properties and higher ratios for market rate properties. HUD says that the enhanced verification of property financial performance data is intended to decrease opportunities for misrepresentation and fraud. Borrower mortgage credit analysis will also be expanded to include a detailed review of contingent liabilities and ballooning term debt that could undermine a sponsor's financial stability. And finally, HUD says pre-screening of proposals for early identification of transactions that are not feasible or not likely to proceed to a commitment will aid in freeing up their staff to focus on a deeper analysis of transactions that will close. 
In addition to the changes outlined in last week's mortgagee letter, HUD says that FHA's multifamily programs will be pursuing additional steps to further update agency standards. These changes will be made through additional mortgagee letters as well as through the rulemaking process. Now, for more information, as I mentioned, the guidance is provided in Mortgagee Letter 2010-21. This letter will be discussed in detail in an upcoming issue of the Novogratz Journal of Tax Credits. These changes will affect the feasibility of all FHA finance properties. In the meantime, in addition to reviewing the letter online at www.hudresourcecenter.com, you can contact my partner, Susan Wilson, in our Austin office for more details on how these changes will affect your FHA finance transactions. Continuing with affordable housing news, congressional subcommittees have been acting on HUD and rural housing appropriations bills. On June 30th, the House Appropriations, Agriculture, and Rural Development Subcommittee marked up its fiscal year 2011 appropriations bill. The subcommittee provided $1.3 billion for rural housing service loans and grants. This is $102 million below the amount enacted in fiscal year 2010, and it's $72 million above the President's request. On July 1st, the House Appropriations Transportation as HUD Subcommittee marked up and passed its fiscal year 2011 appropriations bill. Under the subcommittee passed bill, HUD would receive a total of $49.5 billion. This amount is $2.6 billion more than the prior year, fiscal year 2010, and it's $1 billion more than the President's request. According to the summary chart provided at the markup, the subcommittee passed bill provides $1.8 billion for the home program. This is the same amount as the prior year and $175 million more than the President's request. The bill provides $17.2 billion for Section 8 tenant-based rental assistance renewals. This is $886 million more than enacted in the prior year, fiscal year 2010, and it's $85 million below the President's request. The bill provides $9.4 billion for Section 8 project-based rental assistance, which is an $831 million increase over the prior year, and it's the same as the amount the President requested in his budget. Of note, the bill does not provide any funding for the administration's proposed Transforming Rental Assistance Program. The subcommittee bill does provide $4.4 billion for the Community Development Block Grant Program. That's $98 million less than the prior year, $28 million below the President's request. The subcommittee ignored the President's request to eliminate the HOPE 6 Public Housing Revitalization Program and replace it with the Choice Neighborhoods Initiative. Instead, the subcommittee voted to fund HOPE 6 at $200 million. And this amount is $65 million more than the prior year. And as I noted, it doesn't include any funding for the Choice and Neighborhoods Initiative that was included in the President's budget. Moving on to new market tax credit news, last week, Senator Mary Landrieu of Louisiana proposed a package of tax breaks for those hit hard by the oil spill. The proposal is an effort to help some of the small businesses along the Gulf Coast. Senator Landrieu was joined by a bipartisan, emphasis on bipartisan, both Republicans and Democrats, a bipartisan group of four other lawmakers, Senator Bill Nelson of Florida, 
Senator Roger Wicker of Mississippi, Senator George Lemieux of Florida, and Senator David Vitter of Louisiana. In addition, the Senator's proposal is similar name to one that was also offered last week in the House by Representative Jeff Miller of Florida. The proposal includes, among other things, a special allocation of new market tax credits for the oil spill recovery zone. The Senators say that, similar to allocations of new market tax credit authority that were made following Hurricanes Katrina and Rita, a special allocation of new market tax credit spread over a two-year period should be made to the oil spill recovery zone to contribute to the region's economic recovery. Now, the proposal would also allow for tax credits for Gulf Coast businesses that hire workers displaced by the oil spill. It would enact a temporary program to reimburse Gulf states for any revenue losses if they adopt a hotel or car rental tax holiday. It would extend the net operating loss carryback period. It would also provide small business owners and other taxpayers suffering economically as a result of the oil spill. It would offer them access to retirement savings. And it would enhance small business expensing for oil spill recovery zone costs. The bipartisan group sent the letter to the Senate Finance Committee leadership and urged them to consider quickly enacting the package. The bipartisan nature of the group, five senators coming from across the political aisle and across the Gulf, does send a strong signal to congressional leadership that there's broad support for such a measure. We'll track the proposal's progress and we'll keep you updated in future podcasts. We'll also keep you updated on Twitter via tweets. Switching to renewable energy tax credit news, Congressman Blumenauer from Oregon has introduced a bill to spur the development of geothermal energy. The legislation provides a 30% investment tax credit for geothermal energy. The credit will be available through December 31, 2016. Geothermal energy is energy generated by the natural heat of the earth. Supporters of the legislation say that once installed, geothermal power is incredibly reliable and geothermal energy is available in all 50 states. In California, they note, more than 40 geothermal plants provide nearly 5% of the state's electricity. The legislation is entitled the Geothermal Energy Investment Act, or H.R. 5612. You can download the legislation at our website, www.energytaxcredits.com. That's www.energytaxcredits.com. To learn more about these and other renewable energy tax credits, please give my partner, Stephen Tracy, a call. He's in our San Francisco office and can be reached at 415-356-8000. Moving on, let's discuss the tax credit calendar. This week, on July 15th, the law firm Pepper Hamilton will present a free webinar on financial services reform legislation. The webinar is is entitled, What the Financial Services Reform Legislation Means for You. It's noon to 1.30 p.m. on July 15th, and the webinar will review new consumer protection requirements, corporate and securities law developments, new resolution authority at the Federal Deposit Insurance Corporation, the new Financial Stability Oversight Council's power to act as a systemic risk regulator, and implications for non-financial services businesses. In two weeks, the Texas Housing Conference will be held on July 26th to the 28th 
at the Four Seasons Hotel in Austin, Texas. The Texas Housing Conference brings together more than 500 housing professionals from across the nation. You can visit the website at www.taahp.org to learn more about the Texas Affiliation of Affordable Housing Providers, or TAP. For those of you attending the TAP conference, I encourage you to say hello to my partners George Littlejohn and Susan Wilson from our Austin office. They're active in TAP and will be at the conference, along with other Novigradic professionals. This is the premier Texas low-income housing tax credit conference. The end of that week, July 29th and 30th, IPAD will be hosting its fifth annual Green Homes and Sustainable Communities Conference in Washington, D.C. Two keynote speakers were announced last week, and they're a particular note. They have HUD Secretary Sean Donovan speaking, as well as Congresswoman Anna Eshoo. Also in D.C., but in September, the Affordable Housing Tax Credit Coalition will be holding its fall meeting. The specific dates are September 14th and 15th. I'm very active in the Affordable Housing Tax Credit Coalition, and I encourage you to attend this conference. The last item we have for you this week on the tax credit calendar is a market analyst meeting. It's also in the fall, and it's the National Council of Affordable Housing Market Analysts, which is a council within the National Housing Rehabilitation Association, and it has released its agenda, and it's opened up registration for the conference. It's going to be held October 5th to 6th in Chicago. The Novogratz Valuation Group is active with what's known as NACAMA, and my valuation partners, Brad Weinberg and Blair Kenser, are currently scheduled to be there. So if you go, say hello. In closing the podcast this week, I do have some interesting tax credit tidbits. First, the Massachusetts Historic Rehabilitation Tax Credit Program has been extended. On June 30th, Massachusetts Governor Deval Patrick signed the state's fiscal year 2011 budget bill, and it included an extension of the Massachusetts Historic Rehabilitation Tax Credit Program until December 31, 2017. The program was set to expire at the end of 2011. This program provides tax credits for as much as 20% of the cost of certified rehabilitation expenditures for income-producing properties. The program provides as much as $50 million annually for such rehabilitation projects. Copies of the budget bill and the governor's remarks are available on the Novogratic Historic Tax Credit Resource Center website. That's www.historictaxcredits.com. You can also contact my partner, Charlie Ruda, in our Boston office for more details about the Massachusetts State Historic Tax Credit and how you can use it with your developments. Also, HUD recently released 2009 American Housing Survey data. In the data, HUD noted that there are just over 130 million residential rental housing units in the United States, and that 86% of these are occupied. Some of the other key findings of the 2009 survey include that 68% of U.S. homes are owner-occupied, 51% are located in suburban areas, with the balance 29% in central cities, and 20% outside of metropolitan areas. The medium age of a home is 36 years. You can find other interesting data from the 2009 American Housing Survey online at www.hudusr.org. In company news, the purchase of CW Capital by Fortress was announced on July 1st. 
Founded in 1972, CW Capital manages, invests in, and originates and advises on commercial and multifamily real estate debt products. As of April 30th, 2010, CW Capital was the investment manager, servicer, or special servicer for a portfolio of $183.6 billion of loans and securities. With more than $160 billion of named special servicing assignments, CW Capital is the second largest special servicer in the United States and is a significant Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, and FHA lender, servicing over $11.5 billion of multifamily and commercial loans. Fortress will acquire CW Capital from majority shareholder Otero U.S. Holding, Inc. Closing of the transactions expected during the third quarter, subject to various regulatory approvals and closing conditions. Well, that brings me to the end of this week's report. Please join me again next week for another edition of Tax Credit Tuesday. This is Michael Novogratik. I'll be back next Tuesday. Thanks for listening. <music>